I'd only been away at university less than a week in Chicago before I had to travel home back to Ontario for my sister's wedding. The weekend, it was a good weekend, but I was excited to get back at school. And so that Sunday, me and the the guy who had hitched a ride back with me, he just wanted to see some family. We headed back to Chicago. And at first, the trip was uneventful. But after crossing the border in Sarnia, I made a wrong turn and soon found myself somewhere in Detroit. The area, it seemed a little sketchy, but I wasn't too concerned. That is, until the car stalled and we had to push it onto a side street. Not sure what to do, I tried every trick my dad had taught me. I was determined to get this car to start, but it refused to start. I tried so many times that I drained the battery. There was nothing else to do but call the tow truck. And so I called it and we waited. And as we waited, I remember telling my friends, my friend, I said, I think this is an electrical problem. If they jump us, I think we can get the rest of the way. When the tow truck driver arrived, I asked him to. He wasn't willing to jump the car. He just wanted to tow it and wanted to know where it needed to be towed. He was convinced we would have to take a hotel and wait till the morning when the garage is open. I had tried the car just minutes before he got there. The battery wouldn't even turn the car over. But I wasn't willing to throw in the towel that easy, so I told him I was going to pray and try one more time. I told my friend to get in the car. I closed the door of the car, and I laid my hands on the steering wheel, and I prayed. I pleaded with God. We had school to go to. My friend had some immigration concerns he had to deal with. We, we needed to be back in Chicago. So I asked God to start the car, figuring if he could create the universe, this mechanical problem would be nothing to him. And then in faith, they turned the key. And to my surprise, the car started. I must admit, I didn't stop to stop to thank the tow driver. I just waved as we pulled out around the tow truck. It, it wasn't until a week later in Chicago I discovered the problem that caused it. Well, so often when we pray, we pray like that, don't we? We, we have a need. There is an emergency. Something is beyond our control, and we need help, and so we go to God with it. One person was once watching in horror as a, a tornado ripped through uh, a con- the country and leveled a house. And after the storm moved on, they saw someone trying to open the cellar doors, and so they went to help them. And as they got them out, they asked them, is there anyone else in there? To which the man responded, no, just me and God having an urgent conversation. Well, that is often us. Another story is told of a father of a fifth grader who passed his bedroom and heard his fifth grader saying over and over again, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo. The next day when the father asked him what was he was doing, the boy replied that he had given the wrong answer on a test for the capital of Mexico, and so he's praying that Tokyo would become the capital of Mexico. <laughs> well, those are the kind of prayers that we relate to, aren't they? The kind of prayers that those that don't even darken the doors of the church sometimes pray. And so other times our prayers are so focused on us, they're like John Ward. John Ward was a, a member of British Parliament several centuries ago, and he prayed this, O oh Lord, you know that I have nine houses in the city of London, and I have lately purchased an estate in Essex. I beseech you to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and earthquakes. And I also have a mortgage in Hertfordshire. I beg you also to have an eye and compassion on that country. And for the rest of the counties, you may deal with them as you wish. O Lord, enable the banks to answer all their bills and make all the debtors good men. Give prosperous voyage and safe return to the mermaid sloop because I have not insured it. And because you said the days of the wicked are short, I trust that you will not forget your promise as I have an estate that I will inherit on the death of that poor, profligate young man, Sir J.L. Preserve me from thieves and housebreakers and make all my servants so honest and faithful they may always attend to my interests. Sadly, our prayers are often like that. We're asking God to do something for us. Help us with some problem or spare us some tragedy. Comfort, provide, heal us. 
truthfully, even when our prayers are less self-centered, if we're honest, even when we're praying for others, it isn't much different. I mean, I, I can't count how many prayer meetings I've been to where the prayer list seems to resemble a patient list found at the nurse's station on the ward of a hospital. Now, don't hear me wrong. It isn't that God doesn't want us to pray for the health of others. It's not wrong to pray for the health of others. It, it isn't that God doesn't care for someone's niece's cousin's friend's sister. But if you, if you have never wondered if that's supposed to be the extent of our prayers, the passage today starts to, to challenge that notion that our prayers should be more than that. In fact, in the section we come to today, the Apostle Paul lays out some things that I believe we should pray for constantly. Things that I believe are more central and important than even the pressing things we often take to God in prayer. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn back with me to the book of Ephesians as we continue in our study of this book. You remember last week we started into this book, a, a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to those in Asia Minor and specifically those in the city of Ephesus. Paul, he, he knew firsthand how difficult it was to live the Christian life in Ephesus as he had spent about three years there himself. It was there that Paul had been thrown out of the synagogues. It was there that Paul had faced opposition from those that sold idols. So Paul, he knew the pressure to worship the emperor and to discard the gospel was strong in the town, and he wanted to encourage them. Last week, we looked at the first 14 verses of the book, and we found that Paul, he didn't waste any time to do so. But instead, having given his greeting, he immediately reminded them how God had blessed them by joining them to Christ telling them and us that if you are in Christ today, if you are saved, that God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world. That before you made anything, before you had done anything good or bad, before you were even a thought in your parents' mind, he had incorporated you into his plan. I know that that was just Paul's way of assuring them that while persecution might come their way, while they might fail to live how they should, that their salvation, it wasn't rooted or established in what they had done, but what it, had God had done for them. It wasn't because of what was in their heart, but because of what was in his. And because of that, they could be confident that the same God who started a work in them would see it to completion. Still as great as that was, Paul, he didn't stop there. No, he went on to encourage them that God the Son had redeemed them. Jesus spares us from sin and death. That too is amazing when you stop and think about it. After all, Jesus, he knew how sinful we were. He knew every evil thought you would ever have, every lie you would ever tell, every moment you would choose sin. And yet, despite that, he st still chose to redeem you and bring you into relationship with him anyways. And Paul then reminded them of the Spirit, God the Spirit, how he had sealed them and guarantees their salvation. For those that were struggling, the words of Paul you, that he used in chapter one, are as strong as any in Scripture. He says, God chose you. He predestined you. You are His no matter what. He has bought you and forgiven you. He has given you His Spirit and sealed you. That despite what life may bring, God the Father has chosen you. God the Son has redeemed you. And God the Spirit has assured you. And Paul, he didn't promise we'll never have to walk through deep trials. That disease won't come or that relationships won't be hard or that job situations might not be difficult or that you wouldn't always know what next steps you need to take. But instead, he promises that in Christ, we're already home. His spirit guarantees it and seals it. That means that if you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about whether God the Father will accept you when you stand before him one day because he already has. He's adopted us and joined us in Christ. And that should empower us. And that was Paul's point, to empower them, give them courage when faced with opposition, enable them to be less concerned about the troubling things in their life and more concerned about doing what God would want them to do. Less concerned about what the world saw of them and how he spoke of them and treated them because they knew how God saw them. 
It's as if as Paul writes all these things about all of that, all that God had done for us in Christ, that the wonders of it, they just overwhelm him and amaze him. And so he erupts into prayer in the verses we come to today. And it's as he does so that he gives us some things that we should be praying for that go beyond what we typically pray. Things that are vital if we ever want to be the kind of people God would truly want us to be and ever want to fully understand the blessings that we've been given in Christ. So if you would, you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 15. Paul writes this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his uncomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Having praised God for all he's done at the start of the chapter, Paul's mind, it naturally moves on to giving thanks to God for it. And as he does so, as he starts, he, he, he reminds us that we too should praise God for the evidence of God's grace in others' lives, that you and I should give thanks to God for what he's doing in the lives of others. It only made sense that Paul would think of their faith and love as he just shared how God was the one that enabled their faith, the one that had made them in Christ. And yet even more than that, you got to think that for Paul, it wasn't just that they received the faith, but they were living it out. They not only believed that God would care for them, they were acting on it. There's a story about a man who was once attempting to cross the frozen St. Lawrence River. He wasn't really sure whether the ice would hold him, and so the man first got down and tested it by laying one hand on it. Then he got on his knees and started to make his way crawling across the river. When he got to the middle of the river, he was trembling with fear and and moving very slowly, but he heard this noise behind him, and looking back, he saw in horror a team of horses pulling a carriage down the road towards the river. When it reached the river, it didn't stop, but bolted right onto the ice past him while he crouched there on all fours. He just didn't know how firm the ice was. Well, the Ephesians, they knew that Christ had saved them and could hold them up. And so as a result, they were charging like that, that wagon straight ahead. In fact, so much so that their faith had played out in, in their love for one another. They were living out Jesus' new command. Jesus, in the book of John, had told his disciples and us, a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, their, their love, it, it was flowed from their faith in Ephesus. 1 John 3 reads, This is how we have come to know life. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. Well, those in Ephesus, they embraced that. Their attitude was my life for your life. They were willing to put aside their rights and their preferences and privileges for each other. Just as Jesus gave himself, they were willing to give to each other. There's a picture someone once drew of, of how it showed several obviously unhappy people seated around a table for a meal. Each one held a 
a long-handled spoon, which, with which it was impossible to feed themselves. They could only feed each other, but no one was willing to do that. Well, there was none of that in Ephesus. They looked out for each other. They bared with each other's inadequacies and eccentricities and, and sins and love. And so Paul thanked God for what he was doing in and through them. Well, well let me ask you, how often do you do that? I mean, how often do you praise God for the way he's at work in someone else's life or the way he's blessing them? I've been a pastor for about 25 years, and I can't tell you how many times I see pastors who don't do that, that are, that are jealous when God seems to be work somewhere else. I mean, why is that guy's church growing, not mine? Why are they seeing all this fruit, not us? Maybe as a church member, you think, why, why did God give that church a new building or, or that new pastor and not us? And those can be good questions if they cause us to look in the mirror and reflect on where we're at and things we need to do, but not if they cause us to fail to give thanks for what God is doing. St. John Cross put it this way, as far as everyone is concerned, many experience displeasure when they see others in possession of spiritual goods. They feel hurt because others surpass them on this road and they resent it when others are praised. Some believers become resentful when God blesses someone else. Why them? Why not me? Why did they get that? Why didn't God give that to me? But that isn't what Paul shows us here. Instead, Paul's example, he call, by his example, he calls us to praise God when God is at work, regardless of who he's blessing. Dear friends, make no mistake, God is at work in powerful ways in our world today, and we need to be thankful for it. So let me ask you, are you thrilled when you hear of the faith and love of others? Happy when others seem to be blessed, even though you're not feeling blessed yourself? Do, do you rejoice that God's blessing is happening somewhere? else. Here Paul did. Somehow you and I, we, we need to get past ourselves, past our narrow perspective and see the kingdom that God is building. We need to get the point that we rejoice every time God moves, regardless of whether it's here, whether it's on the mission field, in one of our sites, or in the church down the street. We should praise God for what we see him doing in the lives of others. Well, not only should we praise God for what he's doing in other churches and believers, but notice secondly, Paul here, he prays that they might know God better. You and I should pray that others would know him better. At first sight, is shocking, isn't it? I mean, Paul, he just taught them about all they are in Christ. And in doing so, has more than implied that they're already saved. And since knowing Christ is one of the ways that the Bible describes saving faith, since John 17 reads, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The request, it just seems out of place. It leaves us wondering, why would he pray that they know him more? I mean, didn't they already know him? Perhaps it was just Paul's way of wanting to, them not to settle for little knowledge. He, he didn't want them to be like some that might today sing in pride, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. I only know that Jesus died and that he died for me. And, and yet they don't want to know more. The, those that want enough to know enough to go to heaven, but not anything more than that. Or maybe it was that Paul thought that knew of the danger there would be for some that might settle for mere knowledge of the Bible or knowledge of God. He knew there was a big difference between knowing about God and, and knowing God. But my best guess is it's just that Paul, he knew that knowing Christ, growing in a relationship with him, was the main goal of life. There are things to be done. Paul's going to call us to do things in this book. But more important than all of that was knowing God and growing closer to him. It was even Paul's main goal. Over in Philippians 3, he tells us that he wants to know Christ. That was his motivation, his singular focus. 
Today, our, our world, the wisdom of the world is summed up in know yourself. We are told to seek to understand ourselves better, and, and there's some merit to understanding how God has made us and equipped us, but sadly, sometimes we get so consumed with knowing ourselves that we forget that more important than that in life is knowing Christ, that as Christians, knowing Christ is the primary goal. Like Paul, we should want to know him more, want to be deepening in our relationship with him. We should read scripture with an eye to know him more, hear preaching, hoping to to know him more, pray for the church and ourselves to know him more. It should be our all-encompassing drive to the the point that our meaning, our worth, our purpose is in being is him. You see, it's just that the more you know him, truly know him, the the more you'll not only be like him, but the more you'll want to know him and the more your lives will be shaped by him. Simply put, there is nothing more central in the life of a believer than knowing Christ. In other words, if there was a key to the Christian life, one core essential, knowing Christ is it. Now, let's be honest. If you've been in church for a long time, you know that. You've heard it. You believe it. You may have even taught it to others. And yet, sadly, many who've done that don't really believe it because they don't live it. You see, it's just that you can't know him more if you don't spend time with him. And there are many that spend little time with Jesus, little time with God between each Sunday. They don't read his word. They don't pray. Truthfully, they don't have much relationship with him. Sure, Jesus is a part of their lives in a small way. They they come to church. They give, maybe. But he's far from the focus of their lives. You see it in how they spend their time. Well, like any relationship, it requires time. Besides, the more you know him, the more you will love him, the more you'll want to spend time with him and want to please him. And Shelly and I, we, we've been married for 25 years. And rarely a week goes by that I don't discover something or learn something about her. Well, God is infinitely more complex than my wife. So this pursuit of him is never finished in this life. Even Paul strove for it as he's writing the epistles that make up the New Testament. It was his primary goal in life. And he probably is the most influential person next to Jesus that God sent. And so here, Paul, he prays that we would know God better. That's just our part. After all, we have a role to play. But Paul's prayer, it's a little more specific than that. You can notice, Paul, he prays that God would give them the spirit and revelation. That as they seek him, as they seek God, God would reveal himself to them. That as they read God's word, that the Spirit would bring understanding to them. That as they face circumstances in life, that the Spirit would give them wisdom to deal with them. That God, the Spirit, would reveal God's character, His attitude, and empower them to reflect Him, God, to the world, regardless what they face. Over in 1 Corinthians, we read this. As it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For whom among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Well, Paul, he prays that God the Father would do exactly that, exactly what he had promised. Give them God the Spirit, and the Spirit would reveal God to them that they might know him better. So let me ask you, is that how you pray for yourself? Do you pray that God would reveal himself more to you? Is that how you pray for others? For leadership, for missionaries, for others in the church? If not, it should be. It's not that you shouldn't pray for their health or their comfort, but instead that first and foremost you should pray that they grow in their knowledge of Christ. Almost lastly, 
Paul here, he prays that God will open their eyes of their hearts. You and I ought to pray that each other would have better spiritual vision. Specifically, Paul asks that God would give them better vision, open their eyes regarding three things. Hope, riches, and power. And Paul, he starts off by praying they would know the hope they've been called to. Hope's a, a funny thing, isn't it? Today we hope for all kinds of things that are beyond our control. We, I hope that it is sunny after church today, or I hope that I'll be able to retire someday, or that I can get into that class I want to get to, into. But the word hope, it isn't used that way in the Bible. Instead, the Bible speaks of a living hope, a hope that is sure, one that is grounded in our calling by God the Father, a hope that has its source in God's choosing us before the foundation of the world, and a hope that is sealed by the Holy Spirit given to us. I hope that's certain. I hope you can take to the bank. Let's face it, that kind of hope is rare today, isn't it? It certainly was for those that Paul was writing to in Ephesus. After all, for them, despair was everywhere. People had little hope. There was no hope of even life getting better. A common epitaph of the time read this, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. There was no hope. And today it isn't much better. One author recently wrote this, the elderly read the obituaries first. The young have lost a sense of hope to make a difference in their music show. Middle-aged people are bored. In other countries, the addition of war and famine to the list make the situation absolutely stifling. We have a sense that we cannot solve our problems individually or socially. This loss of hope for the present is based on a loss of hope for the future. Well, is it any wonder if there's no hope for the future that our world is caught up in the present? If there's no hope for the future, why would they not focus on the pleasures of this life now? After all, if life is nothing but meaningless, if none of it matters, what else is there to do? Well, here's the thing. Paul here says there is hope for the believer. And Paul wants them to see it. The gospel is, is about what Jesus has done, but what he has done is not finished. And so Paul, he wants them to open their eyes, lift up their eyes, look past the troubles they're facing to eternity and to hope. See, Paul, he knew that it was our hope of the future, our hope of our future salvation in heaven with our Savior that should motivate us in the present. On the wall of my office, I have a, a phrase that reads this. It says, eschatology inspires us to ethics. It's really just a fancy way of saying our hope should determine what we live and how we act now. And don't, don't miss it. Our hope, it should change everything. One author wrote this. Another author wrote this. In our generation, which... We, which reflects too little in the future and almost never on eternity, it's distressingly obvious that we need help. Help from God so to be able to know the hope to which we've been called. Only then we'll become more interested in living with eternity's values constantly before our eyes. What we will have to show before the great king on the last day will be infinitely more important to us than what we're leaving behind here. Paul, he gets the same point in Colossians 3. Writing, since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now head, hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He then tells them to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Paul knew 
He knew that the working knowledge of her hope would transform her presence. It's why Colossians 3 starts with since. As a result, because you have been raised with Him, because of the future hope you have, because you are seated with Him now and will one day be with Him, then you should live a certain way. Well, because Paul knew that, he asked and prayed that God would remove the blinders from the eyes of those in Ephesus so that they could see past the things that were blocking their vision, the stuff of the world, the troubles they were facing, the persecution they were doing, that they could see past those things to their hope of the future. Dear friends, this life may be hard at times. Persecution may come, troubles may persist, but we know where it ends. And because of that hope, we can face whatever comes our way knowing that this life is just short. We're just passing through. Growing up, I was a, a homesick kid. Well, I, I remember one particular time when I was in high school or just past high school, and I was going away for a long period of time, and I remember being upset. In fact, I remember there were tears running down my face, and my dad hugged me, and he said this to me. He said, Chad, you can do anything for a few months. And it's his way of saying that these, this will pass, that this will come to an end. And I think that's something our Heavenly Father would say to us when we face challenges and trials as well. You can do anything. I will enable you to do anything for a time. Don't despair. It won't last. You're just passing through this life. Eternity is coming. Focus there and live in light of what is to come. So it wasn't just hope that Paul wanted him to see. No, he also wanted to see, you'll notice here, that he wanted him to see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What does that mean? Some, they think that Paul is just reminding them of the, the inheritance we have as believers, that all the resources of heaven are ours. All of God's mercy, His providence, His provision, His promises, eternal security, uh, eternal life, they are all ours. But while that is true, I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. Instead, I think Paul is telling us that God considers you and I His inheritance. That's just how important and special you are to God. In Zephaniah 3, really, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah says that God loved you. The God who created the universe loves you so much that he will take great delight in you. In fact, so much so that he rejoices over you with singing. Paul adds to that image and says that God values us so much that he considers us his inheritance. Now, think about that for a minute. God, the creator of all, the sovereign over all, the one who owns the heavens, considers you his treasure. Friends, Paul wants us to open our eyes so we can see how much God loves us. That he loves us enough to send Jesus for us, to choose us and redeem us. That while he could have excluded us from his plan, he made us a part of his plan and adopted us. That of all the joys in his life, all the wonders that God has made, you are what he values. He considers you, those that are in Christ, his inheritance. So as wonderful as that is, Paul isn't done. No, instead, he goes on to say that God, pray that God would open their eyes so that they could know his incomparably great power for us who believe. In fact, Paul, he, he stacks synonym upon synonym in an attempt to describe God's power. He uses words for raw power and strength, a word for, it's used for propulsion power, or one that implies the ability to conquer, another a physical force, just synonym after synonym, trying to describe the awesome extent of God's power. And then to drive home his point, he gives us an example of it. I don't know about you, but if I was trying to describe God's power, I might refer to his creation, how he spoke the world into being, how his design is complex. One author put it this way, I think of God calculating the mathematics of quarks with half billions 
with half-lights in the billionth of a second. I think of God designing each star and upholding the universe by his powerful word. I think of the pleasure he takes in the woodpecker with its specially designed tail feathers that enable the peck with such force. I marvel at a God who creates emus and cheetahs and the duck-billed platypus. His power extends beyond the limits of our imagination. Now Paul doesn't turn to God's power shown in creation. Instead, he turns to God's power shown in Jesus' resurrection. And says that same power, the power of the resurrection is for us. And see, Paul, he knew if we could grasp God's power, we could not only confidently offer God's grace to everyone, knowing that while someone might say, you don't know what I have done, God can't accept me, not with how sinful I am, that we could confidently say, no, God's power is far greater than that. But not only that, if we could grasp the power God has given us, we could live godly lives as we know that the Spirit imparts God's power to us so we can live as we ought to. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a pastor. He was addressing victory over the worldliness and the flesh and the devil. And he writes, The world constantly bombards us with its values. We get them from television, newspaper, film, the competitive world in which we're living, and from casual conversation. How are we to be victorious over this great enemy? It is by the power of God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This power is able to transform us by the renewing of our minds. It's what makes us new creations. Our second great adversary is the flesh, which in biblical language means the sinful nature we were born with. The flesh, it draws us into inactivity when we should be reading the Bible, praying or performing good works. It locks us in sinful patterns of behavior when we should be living a Christ-like life. How can we triumph over those strong forces? The power of God displayed in the resurrection. Third, there's the devil. Hebrews 2 reads that Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus triumphed over him on the cross. So how can we prevail against him? It's by the power of God displayed in the resurrection. A power that is given to us. Even here in Ephesians, Paul drives the point home writing that Jesus is greater than every force that is or ever will be, that everything is under his feet. Now, that might not matter so much to you today, but for those in Ephesus, some of which were likely formerly caught up in magic and the Artemis cults and the emperor worship who feared hostile spiritual forces, the fact that Jesus was supreme over all the enemies would have mattered. But even if that isn't a concern for you, don't miss it. Paul is saying the power of the risen Christ, the one who's ruling over everything, the power, that power is ours to do battle against worry and temptation and doubt and the demonic. Now, I, I can hear someone say, well, how can that be? I mean, if that's the case, then why do I struggle? Why do I battle with temptation and doubt and, and worry? That's a great question. The answer is it's only as we know that, as we grow in our knowledge of God and His power, that we can appropriate what He's given us and so we can prevail. It's only as we realize that God has given us a way out of every temptation and the power to choose it, as we embrace the fact that He's given us hope in the face of every hardship that we can succeed. Just before World War II, the town of Itasca, Texas, had a school fire. It took the lives of 263 children. It was a terrible tragedy. Well, during the war, the town, it remained without school facilities. But when the war ended, like many towns after World War II, it started to expand. And it needed a new school. Well, you can imagine they built that school. And they did build the school with the finest sprinkler system that they could find. As you can imagine, the the pride in it ran high. Honor students were selected to show and guide citizens on tours of this new facility with its state-of-the-art, as best technology could supply and money could buy, sprinkler system. Never again would they, would, did they want to go through such a tragedy. 
Well, the, the post-war boom, it continued, and seven years later, they had to build an expansion on the school. When they were adding the new wing, it was discovered that the sprinkling system, while it was technologically advanced, had never been connected to the water supply. That is a parable of what has happened in so many Christians' lives. There is untold power for the, every believer in Christ, but so many never hook up their lives to it, and thus are impotent and shamefully useless. If only they'd seek to know God and allow His Spirit to open their eyes. Now, God's power doesn't mean you're not going to face hardships. God's power doesn't remove us from persecution or danger or difficulty, but instead it empowers us to prevail despite them. Romans 8 read, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all of them, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. God's power enables us to prevail despite what comes. When we hear in Ephesus, Paul, he, he prays that God would lift our eyes off the world we live in, the, our immediate concerns, the things around us, and start to see the hope we have, the, the way God values us, and the power of God available to us that he grants us in Christ. And, and you and I, we need to pray like Paul, that for ourselves and others. D. Host was the missionary who took over for Hudson Taylor. And he once set out to discover what was going on in the two villages he worked with. In one village he lived in, he preached in, he taught in, he counseled in. And another village was across the mountain range, and he occasionally was able to, to visit them. The, mount, the, the village and the town across the mountain range was always doing well. They were always doing great. But the village he worked in wasn't often doing well. And so he began to ask God what was going on. How could those across the mountain range do better than those with whom he lived and worked? And the Lord showed him the answer. See, he was spending much time counseling and preaching and teaching to those with whom he lived, but he was spending much more time in prayer for those across the mountain range. So he concluded this, that there were four basic elements in making disciples. Number one, prayer. Number two, prayer. Number three, prayer. And number four, the word in that order and in about that amount. I don't know about you, but I need that reminder at times. I need the reminder that as a parent, that just as important as what I teach my kids is how I pray for my kids. That I should pray that my kids go in a knowledge of Christ, that they know the hope they have in Him, experience the pleasure of being His inheritance, and grasp the power He has given to them in Christ. I need the reminder as a church member to pray that our leadership would, that the Holy Spirit would give our leadership wisdom and reveal God to them that they might know, might know him and be better in tune with what he wants. But most of all, I need to remember to ask for those things for me as well. Simply because growing in our knowledge of God is so fundamental to our faith that if I don't, I not only will be ill-equipped to face the temptations of this life and experience anxiety when I should have peace and worry when I should be filled with hope, but my focus will be misplaced. And I won't be everything that God wants me to be. And greater still, most importantly, if I don't, I'll miss the most important thing in life, my relationship with Jesus. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for Paul's prayer for the Ephesians here. And so, Father, we just echo his prayer today. Father God, I pray that you would give your spirit of wisdom and revelations to those, revelation to those that are here, that they may know you better, that they may see you clearly. I pray that, you're, I pray that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so that they may the, the hope to which you've called them, the riches of your glorious inheritance in them as your saints, and your incomparably great power for them who believe in you. Father, open their eyes to see this, that it might fashion who they are, how they act, but mostly that it might drive them deeper in their walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.